Hey guys, this is Anna. So before we get today, get on with the show today, let's hear from our sponsor. Hey everybody, this is the Ramblings of a Transgender Christian Podcast. I am your host, Anna Hudock. So today we have quite a bit to get to. Um, I actually have four articles, but we're not getting to all of them. We do not have the time, nor do I have the energy to get through all four articles. Um, I'm going to try to get to at least two of them, maybe three, um, we'll see. But yeah, I really did not want to do a bonus episode for Patreon subscribers today, because um, I do try to do, you know, at least one uh, bonus podcast episode for Patreon subscribers every other week. Lately, it's been more like one or two a week, but you know, whatever, um... But hey, it looks like I'm going to have to because I have so much to discuss in this episode. And there's no way I'm getting to it all. And there's even a lot of stuff I want to discuss that's not articles. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's see. Where should I start? So, okay, a few things I definitely, definitely want to mention. Um, more than anything. Is first off. Um, we have some very good news. Um, so this is so this was an Axios poll. So Axios has just done a study where they have found that fifty-one percent of Americans now have a favorable view of socialism, and only sixty-six percent of eighteen to thirty-four-year-old Republicans view capitalism favorably, which is down from eighty-one percent in January of twenty nineteen. All right, people, we are finally winning the fucking uh, debate. People are starting to realize that capitalism is not a viable path forward. It was a necessary... Here's the thing. Capitalism was that unfortunately necessary stage um, thing that we needed to, um, to help transition us out of feudalism. Okay, like... There was no reasonable way for us to go from feudalism to something to uh, Marxism. Uh, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. We needed a transition stage before then. Because here's the thing: make no mistake about it, capitalism was absolutely better than feudalism. Uh, I absolutely. Unfortunately, capitalism still really, really sucks. Um, and it has no respect for the average worker. It is strictly, it benefits one class, you know, it, it only benefits the powerful in our society. Those of capital, you know, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeoisie. These are the only people it benefits. It does not benefit in any way the proletariat, a.k.a. the working class. The working class can go fuck itself. We are we, we are merely slaves who are meant to be exploited under capitalism. You know, and the the the, 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 the pandemic I think really exposed to people the major shortcomings of capitalism. Um, I mean, it was the perfect display for the fact that we are in late stage capitalism. And that it is something that is untenable 
it needs to c collapse, it needs to die. And I think that this is why you're seeing Americans, especially, you know, over this past year, come to it much more quickly, you know. You're seeing these huge um, spikes in people uh, being against capitalism. It's because the pandemic was, uh, was, was the perfect showcase for just how unethical and how untenable capitalism truly is. Um, and I think also realized, uh, helped the proletariat realize that, no, I do want power. The way things were before sucked. I want to have a say in my working conditions, what I do in my job and all that stuff. Things that you would have under socialism because socialism is, you know, socialism, communism are simply power in the hands of the proletariat instead of, uh, you know, the hands of uh, uh, the bourgeoisie and the ruling class. Um, you know, it's power to the working class. And I think that the working class is very much waking up, realizing that they've been getting screwed all these years. And there is a better way, which is a beautiful thing to see, you know. And we're even seeing, you know, um, the proletariat rise up everywhere across the world. You know, there was India last year. The, the largest protest in the world happened in India last year. The mainstream media did not cover it. You had to go to leftist media such as the Young Turks, Serfs, uh, Democracy Now!, you know, to even hear about it. And it was, you know, uh, the uh, Indian farmers rising up to, to, uh, to, to protest the Indian government who decided to give a giant fuck you to the proletariat, you know, saying you have to uh, do all your negotiations strictly with the bourgeoisie now and, uh, you know, face set everything and you just have to live with it, you know. The government is not going to help you make things more fair. You just have to, you know get fucked. And the proletariat didn't lay, take it laying down. They uh, showed up in the biggest numbers anyone's ever seen in world history for a protest. You know, all around the world, you're seeing the proletariat starting to rise. I can only hope that this momentum continues. Um, but yeah, anyway, I just had to share that amazing news. Um, even, you know, Republicans are moving away from capitalism, finally. So, uh, this is, I mean, this is good news for everyone. So, anywho, um, so there was that. Um, another thing that I definitely, <clears throat> quite definitely wanted to talk about in um, this episode is uh, some slur discourse. So this past week on a uh, Tumblr, uh, there was I, they, 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 there was this um, friend I have who's uh, cisgender and heterosexual, so cishet, um, cishet man, who used the term queer to describe the LGBT communities, that you know the queer community or something like that, um, which is a perfectly valid term. You know, it's been the term it described, used to describe the LGBT community 
for decades now by both people in the LGBT community and, you know, cishet people. You know, it's just what you call the LGBT community. And it's never been problematic until, you know, about 10 years ago. Um, and so you use that term, and there's this uh, LGBT person who got really offended by him using that term. Um, they made their uh, opinion known. I think they commented on one of the things, and then they sent him a uh, question on a... Uh, you know, a comment on Tumblr, which he responded to. Um, so I went into that, the comment section of that and defended my cishet friend. Um, and that person immediately went straight after me. Um, and I gave that fucker a smackdown. I might well try to remember to, uh, to leave a link to my smackdown of that, uh, idiot on, uh, on Tumblr. In the, in the show notes, sorry. In, in the show notes, sorry. It's still early in the morning. Um, right now it's 7.59. I just went, you know, I only got up like 50 minutes ago, okay? Like, I literally only woke up like 50 minutes ago. Um, you know? Kind of combed my hair, not, not really. Shaved. Uh, took my meds. Minus my estrogen. I gotta take my estrogen in about an hour. Um... And, uh, what the fuck, um, ate a bowl of Fruity Pebbles all within about 50 minutes and started recording this podcast, okay? So, I'm not fully awake yet, I recognize. <laughs> Probably stupid to be recording this podcast at the moment. Um, but yeah, so, uh... So yeah, he went after me, I, 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 I gave him the smackdown. As of recording, uh, he hasn't responded yet. Maybe he will after the recording, uh, after I finished recording, but as of the moment, he is, uh, that I know of, he has not uh, responded to my, uh, to my Smackdown. But it is amazing to me, just, uh, how, like, I don't see it too often, but I see it enough. Uh, people who are genuinely offended by the word queer, who find that term problematic, when once again it's been the term I uh, use to describe the queer community or the LGBT community for decades now by both cishet people and by the LGBT community. It's just a blanket umbrella term. And it, it, it just amazing, like, I just don't understand where a lot of this offense is coming from. And even if I did, it wouldn't matter. Um, like, even if it's a slur, it's still a term that you have to allow uh, the, 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 the oppressor to use, you know, just as the same way that, you know, people you, you call Jews, Jews, you know? Jew is in many ways a slur, you know? Um, try to think, you know, like a lot of people use it in certain ways, like, you know, you dirty Jew, you know, stuff like that, you know, um, so, it, like, it can be used as a slur, but it's just what, you know, the Jews call themselves, and, you know, what, uh, us, uh, Gentiles call, uh, Jews as well, and the same thing with the queer community, sure, can it be used as a slur? Absolutely, I've seen it, but guess what, it's just a descriptive term, it's what the community is called, if you're going to take this word away, then, you know, like, 
I don't know. It's 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 stupid to take away what the community has always been called by everybody. Um, just because, you know, a few people got a little bit offended over it. Like, sorry you're offended over it, bro, but get over it. I'm sorry. It's a you problem. Um, this really is a you problem if you are offended by a cishet person using that term. And so, yeah, um... So yeah, I guess I betrayed the LGBT community this past week, and uh, I don't really give a fuck, so whatever, you know? Um, if a few LGBT people are offended over me, consider me a traitor, I, whatever the fuck, I don't care. Um, that's the problem. Like, I really hate how, you know, we're all supposed to, you know, uh, fall into certain narratives, you know, you can't question people of a certain group, you know, especially your own, just because, well, for one of your own, therefore, you know, you just got to kind of go along with it, you know. Um, so many narratives you're just expected to go along with because, just because, it's, it's honestly fucking stupid, you know. Um, like, I know I'm going to get in trouble for saying these things, but you know what, I'm sorry, they need to be said. Like, where was the evidence that Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd because he was a racist. From, I mean, maybe I just missed the evidence, but, you know, the, 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 everything I saw and heard led me to believe that it was strictly just a cop, you know, just being a cop, you know? Cops use too much force. They believe that they're above the law. This is how cops operate. I never saw any evidence that this was due to uh, racial animus. You know, maybe I just missed it, but the whole narrative, you know, the moment the video was released, I mean, just the very moment was, this is this was a racist attack. There was never, it was never even allowed to be a discussion that maybe it was just a cop, you know, being a cop, doing what cops normally do. Um... You know, and but you, you weren't allowed to say that, and it was it was so fucking stupid from the beginning. Like I even was, you know, talking to a friend, you know, just like a you know maybe like a week or two after it happened. You know, we were sitting there at the mall eating um Thai food uh, in the little area, you know, the food food court, and they were just discussing it. It's just like, where's the evidence that this was racist? You know. Like, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to, you know, get killed online for saying this, but where's the evidence? You know, um, but, you know, I'll say that, you know, then there was, you know, earlier this year, the Atlanta shootings, um, you know, uh, where, where that when a pastor's kid went and shot, you know, uh, workers at spas, you know, all the evidence shows that this was a sex addiction. But the left-wing media, you know, uh, desperately, so desperately, you know, because just before that happened, you know, we were all talking about, you know, the rise of anti-Asian violence and, hey, he kills a bunch of Asians, so therefore, it's anti-Asian violence. When, no, all the evidence, all of it, points to it being a sex addiction gone awry. You know, I mean, that's literally what he stated in his own manifesto. Um, 
This was strictly a misogynistic killing. This was killing of a misogynist, not of a racist. But no, you're not allowed to say that. Um, you you really are uh, committing a wrong thing if you say such a thing. When simply that's what the evidence says. That's what, I mean, that's even what he said. You know, um, but no, we gotta sit here and pretend that this was some racist killing just specifically targeting Asian people when there's just simply a lack of evidence to support that. But hey, because we had a narrative going on for the past week in the left-wing media that um, uh, anti-Asian uh, violence is up, which is indisputable. There absolutely has been a spike in anti-Asian violence over the past year, not denying that. Uh, and a bunch of Asian people killed. Therefore, this fits into that narrative. We got, we're, we're running with it. Um, but yeah, it, it was so, it was obviously stupid from the start, but I didn't want to say anything because, well, it, all my friends on social media are buying into it, you know, all, all the people that I follow on Twitter are falling into it, you know, my mutuals are going for that, uh, thing, but it's like, no, there's just no evidence, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to say it here and now, um, you know, um, you know, in another narrative that, you know, that anyone who refuses to get vaccinated is bad or we're just really fucking stupid, you know, uh, that there's no excuse to not get a COVID vaccine when, no, there's a lot of reasons not to, um, people have legitimate questions and it actually angers me to see these legitimate questions that people have just get tossed to the side. You know, not, I want to get clear. Yes, absolutely. Some of these questions are asked in bad faith. I'm not denying that. But a lot of these people are asking in good faith. They genuinely don't know whether they can trust these vaccines or not. And then just get thrown under the label anti-vaxxer. Okay, anti-vaxxer means one thing. People who are against vaccines, like, no, you will never vaccinate me. Go fuck vaccines. Most of the people who are hesitant or aren't plan or at the moment aren't planning to get vaccinated, there's a lot of these people who are you call anti-vaxxers are just waiting a few years to make sure that the vaccines are safe. That's not anti-vax. I'm sorry. You can't just change the definition to fit your political narrative at the time to smear good people. It doesn't work that way. You, the moment when you just smear anyone as anti-vax just because we're a little bit hesitant or, you know, maybe waiting to see, make sure that these vaccines are safe, you know, um, because he's had such expedited uh, testing times. Guess what? You're more of a problem than those people are. You are doing nothing to further the conversation in any way. You are doing nothing for better, nothing, doing nothing to actually further the cause that you claim to have to help try to get people vaccinated. Maybe instead of just mocking, um, uh, you know, and just, call, you know, just not necessarily mocking, but just, you know, labeling everybody's anti-vax and stupid, uh, go out there and discuss some. Just saying. Talk to these people. Get to know them. Get to know their questions. For not all evil 
little manipulative and all evil liars, you know, who, uh, you know, just want people to die. You know, and it, it's it's terrifying to me to seeing the dehumanization in left-wing media of these people. You know, I even remember seeing uh, David Pakman, you know, um, consistently just labeling these people as dangerous, which, like, the moment you start labeling these people as dangerous to society, guess what, you just successfully dehumanized them and made it clear that, you know, in... This is a horrid, slippery slope. You know? Like, especially, you know, let's be honest, most of the people listening are probably in the LGBT community. We should know better than anyone, you know, where this dehumanizing rhetoric goes, you know? And should know better to de not to dehumanize. I even see many in the LGBT community dehumanize these people, you know? Call them dangerous to society and everything. Like, this is, this is not healthy... Uh, discourse for anyone. Like, once you start dehumanizing, it's just not healthy discourse. And I see so much of the left-wing media do this. Um, but no, most of the people, because I know, like, literally almost everyone I know is vaccine hesitant. Or waiting a few years to make sure that they are, in fact, safe because of how expedited the uh, vaccines were. These are not evil, malicious people who are dangerous to society. I know from firsthand, you know, these people. And I think it really just shows the bubble that so many are in that they consider these people to be dangerous to society, that their questions are unreasonable, that they're all just fucking idiots. Well, you know, they're not. They're absolutely not. I hate to break it to you. If you actually believe so, I'm sorry, you are in a bubble. You need to get out of it. Reach out to these people. Understand where they're coming from. Please, do yourself a favor. Stop dehumanizing. Anyway, um, I just had to get that all out. It's just been just beyond frustrating to see. Um, see, see the left become so fucking dogmatic in so many ways. Become so puritanical, requiring one narrative, you know. The narrative is at the beginning and they never let go, no matter where the evidence ends up, you know? Um, but yeah, it's it's been pretty fucking, um, fucking uh, disappointing. You know, that and the fucking masks outside. The sun kills viruses, you idiots. You don't need a mask outside. Why are you wearing one? So fucking obvious that you don't. Whatever. Whatever, you know, we're supposed to believe that you're, you're a bad person if you don't wear a mask outside. Like, go fuck yourself. The sun kills the viruses. You don't need it outside. Whatever. Whatever. Anywho, uh, moving on. So, here in America, there is one denomination above all, and that is the Southern Baptist Convention. They are the largest denomination here in America, uh, and pretty much the whole religious narrative, you know, the Christian narrative, goes through them. They set the narrative, um, just simply because they are the largest by quite a decent margin from last I saw. Um, you know, like, just saying, you know. 
you don't see a whole lot of New York Times or Washington Post articles on Presbyterians or Nazarenes or Lutherans. But Southern Baptist? Hell yeah, baby. There's like 50 of them a year um, because they are that important to the national religious discourse. They set the religious narrative to Southern Baptists too. So unfortunately, we... If you're a Christian, you're pretty much forced to pay attention to what's going on with the Southern Baptists. Because, well, unfortunately, here in America, they represent Christianity. Um, and so we just had a convention recently uh, where they all got together. And it, and it was a shit show, to be uh, quite frank. And there's been a lot of articles kind of written since that, during then and since then. Um, of kind of some of the takeaways and some of the things that we can learn from it. And this was a fantastic article uh, sent to me on Twitter by a, by, by a show listener. Sin City, I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced, I have no idea, but it's like Sin City or something like that. Um, try to leave a uh, link to... Uh, Try to remember to link it to our Twitter. No promises, but we'll see. We'll see if I remember to do so. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, a loyal listener to the show uh, sent us, uh, tweeted me this article. And once again, because Southern Baptists are so important to the American religious discourse, this is why we are talking about this. So... I recognize that if you do not live in America, this has nothing to do with you. Unless you just want to sit here, point and laugh at stupid Americans, or want to understand American Christianity better, there's really no reason for you to listen to this article. I will have, of course, as usual, have time codes in the description. You can just uh, skip to whenever, or just end the episode here. So, how long have I been recording anyway? Okay, um, so yeah, start off with this uh, article. Uh, I don't remember where it was written, what uh, site it was on. Um, let's see. Uh, Baptist News Global. That's who. Baptist News Global. Uh, link will be in the description, of course, in the show notes or the YouTube description, of course. Because um, remember, you can watch the podcast on YouTube now. I am video recording me doing the podcast now, so you can watch it on YouTube, so... And, of course, my YouTube is in the description. Unless you're watching on YouTube and my YouTube is not in the description, but whatever. Um. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's written by Bill Leonard. Here's how it is. Started, article starts. In his monumental work, Southern Churches in Crisis, published in 1966, Samuel S. Hill, Jr., then chair of the Religion Department at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, wrote... The cultural social complex in which revivalism fundamentalism came to birth and flourished uh, daily undergoes significant modification. Okay, for those who do not understand uh, revivalism fundamentalism, what the fuck does that even mean? Okay, so um, a huge part of American Christianity, but especially American Southern, uh, sorry, Southern American Christianity was good old-fashioned revivals, you know? Where a pastor would come, would travel city to city, set up a big tent, 
and, you know, invite thousands and thousands of people to come worship under this one tent, and he would preach for hours on end. You know, they called them revival meetings. And this was fundamental to Southern uh, Christian, Southern American Christianity. I mean, American Christianity in general, but especially American, Southern American Christianity. And during the 60s, uh, Southern Baptists were very much reliant upon this revival meeting model of getting, you know, a pastor to set up, a, you know, some big name pastor to travel all around the states, you know, from city to city, set up a big tent, you know, get thousands of people to come, you know, and convert hundreds at a time. That's how it worked. You know, Billy Graham, you know, Billy Graham, Charles Spurgeon, um, probably the two most, uh, the, probably the two biggest names I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I think Billy Sunday also did it, if I remember right. I could be wrong. He may have just been a pastor of a church. I feel like he was a revival pastor too, but I'm probably wrong on that. I don't know much about Billy Sunday. Um, despite only living, despite actually having uh, been to the location of his uh, old church um, and actually been to the Billy Sunday Museum um, and only living an hour away from it, so whatever. Um, but yeah, my sister actually goes to college, um, where he did all that stuff, so the college that he was a part of, um, but yeah, anyway, continuing on, the cultural and social complex in which revivalism and fundamentalism came to birth and forged daily undergoes significant modification. The passing of the old culture spells the decline of his culture religion spawned in it and so closely tied to it. As a result, the last four or five years have witnessed the first trends and scores of years toward the stabilizing of religious statistics. Although the denominations do not yet acknowledge or, or grasp its significance, an unprecedented area, era sorry, likely to be marked by flux and decline is breaking upon them. The heart of the matter is that the ministry of the churches is ever more irrelevant to persons in the new society. Uh, if what the churches are doing does not relate to the divine message, compassion, and power to people's real lives, for understanding their needs and their problems, the churches act irresponsibly. So once again, this, this was written uh, in 1966. And he is saying, hey, look, we're moving on from this. The, the, the culture is... is Culture in general, you know, the broader culture is moving on from all of this shit. Um, it's moving on from revivalism. It's moving on from, you know, how things have always been done. This is a new culture now. We are living in the age of uh, civil rights um, and all that stuff, you know. Um, things are different. Churches refuse to see that. They refuse to see that people's needs are different now, you know. Uh, they, have, they have different, you know. They can't keep doing things the same good old way. Otherwise, you know, uh, we're acting irresponsibly. And we're going to see dwindling numbers. What a shock. Um, churches didn't see it and they still refuse to see it. Um, to this day. Um, but yeah, anyway... When Samuel Hill projected into the future 55 years ago has become our present. Perhaps a brief foray into his thought will provide insight into where Southern churches have been in order to understand where they are right now. 
Church folk often ask, how did American churches get into this time of decline and division? One response might be, Samuel Hill saw it coming. Um, so we're skipping the next paragraph. Um, it has nothing to do with um, anything that we're talking about. So uh, rereading Southern Churches in Crisis. I realized that while Sam's focus was on the religio-social dilemma of the 1960s, the scenario that he sketched is coming to fruition in Southern Churches and elsewhere in 2021. By the way, if you don't think that Southern uh, Churches are in crisis right now, you have no need to read further. You obviously haven't been reading Baptist News Global or listening to social media, cable TV, talk radio, or the U.S. Congress. If you do believe there is a crisis in Southern Churches and throughout the U.S., then perhaps Samuel Hill's early analysis can provide some perspectives for confronting it. An analysis summarized in the quote uh, that introduced this essay. Consider these points. First, Hill recognized the Southern Churches, particularly popular Protestantism, had become lively sex that forged a rather cozy relationship with the South's cultural social complex. Um, in doing so, they became an organizational establishment. Uh, it's highly privileged in Southern society at retaining elements of her sectarian past, including doctrinal uniformity, conversionist evangelical evangelism, and condemnation of the very quote-unquote worldliness of her, of her culture favored status often provided. So basically, uh, their form of Christianity became the culture. Um, if you were a religious person, especially if someone met this uh, persuasion, you became kind of, you know, you were a part of that culture and it became easy to become, made it easier to become privileged in society. At least you were more privileged than you probably would be otherwise. Um, and, you know, and even after, you know, uh, once they did become the culture, they still were able to get away because they were so dominant as a culture and religious force. Get away with enforcing doctrinal uniformity, you know, and enforcing the way things had always been. Um, they, 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 they did not need to expand and broaden their horizons. In fact, they were... They kept things running the way they had always been. They never changed. Even after becoming the dominant culture. Continuing on with the article, um, Hill predicted that the passing of the old Southern culture would bring a decline, I'd say an now and end, I'd now say an end, to the culture religion of Southern churches. In 2021, some churches and denominations reduced numerically have turned to government in order to retain that culture-religion relationship, at best a temporary fix. So in other words, churches still don't under, they, they realize, oh shit, the culture has moved on from us, we are not the dominant culture. This fucking terrifies us, and so what are we going to do? We're going to run the big daddy government and try to enforce our culture on everybody else in order to rectify it because we don't want to change. This is the way things have been done for, at this point, literally over a hundred years. Um, well over a century. I mean, well over a century. And therefore, we don't want this to change because it's scary. So we need the government to uh, force everyone into our culture. 
continuing on with the article, paradoxically, uh, many of those who blame secularism for destroying faith-based foundations of American culture often fail to recognize that, at least in the South, secular and religious elements merged for generations, slavery being a worst-case illustration, a tension that was bound to break apart. Yep. Second, Hill understands that transitions of sovereign culture impacted the evangelical identity of that popular Protestantism, meaning Baptist, Methodist, and other conversionist oriented groups that dominated their environment. Uh, revivalism, the calling of persons to Christ's conversion through distinct religious experiences, Hill believed was already waning was already waning as a primary vehicle for entrance into Christ and the church. What Hill described as a quote-unquote trend in 1966 would become increasingly normative in many Southern and American evangelicals by 2021. Um, in the South, however, such evangelistic zeal and conversion methodology often was linked to fundamentalism, involving groups and rational, which are rationalistic in, or in orientation, and intent on elaborating and validating propositional revelation. In other words, propositional revelation could turn heartwarming conversion into intellectualized transaction. What Hill described as a trend in 1966 would become increasingly normative among Southern American evangelicals by 2021. Um, so yeah, basically just furthering what I had already said before. Continuing on to the article. Uh, Hill was particularly critical, not of the church's call to vital religious experience of God's grace, but to the increasingly propositional nature of conversion. His critique of traditional conversion processes included, one, the belief that it would rectify all individual and social ills and by itself humanize life. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, talk about that. So, Basically, and this still is in effect today, um, many believe still to this day that uh, conversion means therefore everything that we consider a sin, whether it is or not, you know, anything that we consider disgraceful, it's been automatically cured once you become a Christian, you know. Uh, the moment you become saved, all those old things get washed away, they're no longer a part of you. Um, you know, you are truly a new person, you don't struggle with those things anymore. Um, and therefore, you know, we can, it makes it easier for us to enforce a, uh, society that we want, you know, um, like something that would impact this, uh, the, the people listening to this podcast, for instance, would be, uh, homosexuality, you know, um, they would see homosexuality, you know, they believe that, you know, if you become a Christian, well, then you therefore become, uh, quote-unquote, cured of homosexuality. Um, and so, therefore, if we want to rid, to rid the society of gayness, so we just have to convert people to Christianity because you can't be both Christian and gay because God will just cure you of it. Okay, that's basically what it means. Um, number two. A tendency to overlook persons and their needs unless they are, quote-unquote, prospects for church membership. Yeah, we, we, we still see this today. Churches generally don't give a flying fuck about you. 
unless they believe that you're going to be a regular member of our church. Otherwise, your, your uh, needs mean absolutely nothing to them. Number three, a tendency to separate the conversion moment from the rest of life. Uh, I mean, that is pretty self-explanatory. Um, the conversion uh, moment, the conversion moment, the moment when you become converted, is basically this moment unique in this life. And yeah, it's basically just separate from everything else. Everything is pretty much separate from it. Um, so it was almost otherworldly, you could say. Continuing on. Rather, Hill asserted that the church's direct objective is service. As a result, it forever runs the risk of adding few or no new members to church roles. Yeah, Samuel Hill, he understood. The, whole, the, the church was created for one reason and one reason only, was to serve others. Something that modern uh, churches do not understand. Modern Christians do not understand. I mean, Jesus himself came to serve. He, he said so himself and uh, acted it out, you know. Um, like when he uh, washed uh, the disciples' feet, you know, when, uh, him healing everybody and all that stuff. He, he came here as a servant to demonstrate to us how we are meant to be servants to the world, to each other, you know, our fellow Christians and to the world. Um, something that uh, modern Christians, at least here in, Christ in uh, modern America, or even back then, just completely forgot about or did not understand. Um... The, the, the notion of service is uh, completely gone and just alien. And this is what draws people to Christianity, is the service, it's the love that comes out of that service of others. But instead, what we expect is to be served ourselves. That's how modern American Christianity works. And as a result, well, people aren't going to church anymore. Anyway, um, continuing on with the article. Third, Southern Churches in Crisis links 1966 and 2021. When Hill writes, The heart of the matter is that the ministry of churches is ever more irrelevant to persons in new to new society. Sobering words increasingly self-evident in the empty pews of 2021. Uh, in response to Southern white churches on racial issues accounts for some of these departures then and now, Hill declared, in view of its record of reactionary sub-Christian conduct towards uh, black people, not the word he used, but uh, it's the word I'm using, um, repudiation of the church will seem the only authentic reaction to those who perceived a massive corporate guilt which rests on the shoulders of the region's Anglo-Saxon people. Um, so yeah, uh, what he's saying is, back then, many people uh, saw that the only way to move, on, move society forward was to uh, call out the church, was to be anti-church, you know? Um, 
because of her treatment of black people. Uh, slavery and segregation was very much propped up by the American church, especially uh, Southern Baptists, even before there was a Southern Baptist denomination, just Southern Baptists in general. Um, very much were the main proponents of uh, the ones working the hardest to ensure slavery and segregation. And many people saw this, and so they saw the only way to move on society uh, was to uh, repudiate everything that they taught and said. And we still see that today with uh, the Southern Baptists uh, continued the mistreatment of black people. Uh, many black uh, churches are leaving the, con the denomination because of it. Um, you know, they refuse to support Black Lives Matter. In fact, most of them are very anti-Black Lives Matter. And they uh, consider critical race theory to be the major problem of our time. Um, but yeah, they, they continue to treat black people uh, exceedingly poorly. Continuing on at the article. Um, in 2021, the quest continues for an authentic reaction to race and racism inside and outside of our congregations. As white majority churches affirm that all are one in Christ Jesus and Wayne the response to black-generated movements related to Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. Those tensions were evident in the annual convention sermon at the June meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, when the preacher noted that critical race theory positively acknowledged in a 2019 SBC um, resolution. Notice, critical race theory was viewed as a positive thing by Southern Baptists in 2019, had produced the unusually rancorous debate involving many persons speaking about something they have little understanding of. Because in 2021, Summer Madness uh, Convention, uh, they came out very much in uh, against suffer against critical race theory, calling it one of the most divisive things of our times, calling it Marxist and all that shit. Um, saying that, yeah, basically they just condemned uh, critical race theory, called it evil. But in 2019, they're all in favor of it. But, no. I bet, you know, the difference between then and now is that back then, Fox News didn't give a shit about it. Today, Fox News is, is the only thing that Fox News gives a shit about. And fear-mongering about. That's the big uh, difference now. Um, continuing on, um, offering his own analysis, he asserted that critical race theory is a, quote-unquote, a flawed diagnosis, a hopeless prognosis, and writes a powerless prescription rooted in materialistic humanism and political power. He added, It is powerless because it cannot cure the deepest ills of the human heart. It brings no transformation, produces no love, and results in no justice. It cannot produce what only the gospel can produce, a changed heart and a new humanity. This shit, like, this guy doesn't understand himself with critical race theory. Cr critical race theory is not attempting at. It's simply a framework to understand racism, where it comes from, and how it permeates society today. It is it's something that you're supposed to take, you know, it's a theory, theoretical framework that you're supposed to look at and create solutions 
out of it. It does not, it's not supposed to create solutions in, of, in and of itself. It's simply a framework to help understand racism historically and in the present. That's all it is. Um, anyway, continuing on. Yet, critical race theory is not a plan of salvation. It is not competing with the gospel. Education Weekly explains, Critical race theory is an academic concept that is more than 40 years old. The core idea is that racism is a social construct and that it is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems and policies. Exactly. Anyway, uh, the gospel doesn't change hearts. I learned that from Jesus and folks like my earliest SBC Sunday School teachers. But if we waited on born-again Southern Baptist slave owners to bring transformation, love, and justice to our slaves, black folks might still be in bondage, and that would be a real crisis. I learned that from folks like Samuel S. Hill Jr. Rest in peace, Sam, and thanks. So yeah, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, it's in flames. Um, they are still doubling down. On everything. They, they, they refuse to change for, along with society. They still believe that their only viable path forward is to try to force society using government um, to fit in with their culture. Um, they don't understand anything about culture. Yeah, maybe they just don't understand anything. Uh, they, they, they want to feel nice and comfortable in the bubbles that they have always existed in. Uh, let me see. Um, um hmm. Do I want to, how long have I been recording? Uh, Okay, so we're going to read this article. So, last time when I talked about the Dirtbag Christian Substack, I forgot to leave a link. So, I'm actually going to read an art, the newest article from them, um, simply for a reason to uh, remind everyone, just so I have a reason to put a link in the show notes to this Substack. I have no excuse not to remember to do it now, but I think this is a genuinely important article written by the Dirtbag Christian on the Dirtbag Christian Substack. And so, um, I don't know how much commentary I'm going to provide for this. There may not be much. Because um, I think that this is a genuinely important article. So I'm probably not really going to do much commentary. I'm probably most likely just going to read this straight through. Because I think that this is a very important article. Um, for us uh, progressive spiritual. Uh, for Even if you're not a Christian. If you're just spiritual. Um, if you're progressive. I think this is very important for us moving forward. I'm taking part of the discourse and everything. Okay, so the title is The Growing Pains of Deconstructing from Conservative Theology. Here's how the article goes. Being polyamorous, I often feel uh, questions about my life that are extremely personal and intense and maybe even problematic, especially from religious people. How am I still a Christian? How do kids react to my polyamory? What does my family think? Does this count as adultery? Is my husband okay with it? And then all the typical questions about jealousy and sex and the like that every polyamorous person faces. 
And unlike many people, not only do I answer these questions, but I welcome them. Being as I have nothing to be ashamed of, and openness and vulnerability are some of the defining features of my life. Of course, after years of debates on uh, sides of many issues, I am good at detecting who is having a good faith argument with me, and who is genuinely interested in having her perspective challenged, and who is just trying to be cruel and judgmental on a personal level that would offend me i.e. insinuating by hellbound or sinful or doing something wrong or doing something to hurt my children, all with zero proof in her arguments and just remaining close-minded in her views. I completely, completely ignore the latter. I block them, I unfriend them, I mute them. I have no interest in being someone's moral and ethical punching bag. I, uh, I do have great interest in educating people about the realities of things that define my life like polyamory and liberation theology. There are other people, however, who find themselves unable to emotionally handle the triggers of being questioned about their identities, even from people who might be well-meaning. Non-binary people who are often hurt by questions about their appearance and their pronouns. Gay people likely have no desire to address the same three Bible verses that are birthed at them repeatedly and are used actively to shame them. And, uh... People of color are often heavily, heavily exhausted at having to constantly address the concerns of white people and how to handle certain subjects, especially when experiencing a rampage of daily racisms in a country that would and gladly harm them. How do you reach a racist white person who doesn't believe racism exists in the United States at all, much less give him to address her own personal racism? We just watched as Juneteenth was unanimously made a federal holiday while 15 states voted to ban teaching any sort of history about why Juneteenth is such an important holiday in the first place, making it feel like an empty symbolic gesture. Now, as someone who was raised in conservatism and has left it, I empathize highly about with those people who are out there who, while still unsure about how they feel about certain issues, are willing to discuss it and possibly see a new perspective. Without resources, exposure to, a lot of, to lots of progressive people and folks willingly to gently, but thoroughly, challenge me on my very conserved notions of the world, I may have ended up a mega hat wearer in 2016. I really hope not, though. Most of my family wasn't. For more nice and moderate, still fascist, uh, quote-unquote still fascist GOP uh, supporter types, and dislike Trump not for his policies, but for his rude demeanor. Not sure if that's better or worse. Recently, Drew joined a group of spiritual seekers here in Richmond. And people come from all levels, all backgrounds, and all beliefs, though we are pretty firmly strict on respecting others and being kind. So it tends to be a lot more progressive and not. People are quite open about their thoughts. I've come to realize that while I personally don't mind educating people on fielding questions about my journey, others find it painful to do so. But yet... That's exactly what it is, right? It's all a journey. And how is it we should approach that journey? And I am speaking like some sort of self-identified, self, sorry, and, and I am speaking like some sort of self-deified expert here, right? But I haven't reached peak wokeness, whatever that is. I'm a human being and I have flaws. Despite being surrounded by LGBTQ people in my life and family, I still often have I have to practice people's pronouns in line with my own preconceptions. I mess up and say things that might be flawed or wrong, and I get called out too. 
I'm getting older and society progresses on in all progresses on in all directions and I try to go in every single direction with them. But it is always difficult to stay educated on subjects and identities I don't belong to. If I fuck up, I try to apologize and internalize that without being defensive. But I admit sometimes it feels difficult and I have certainly taken it personally before. I don't know. My life carries a lot of privilege with it and I try to be aware of it all the time. And I think I do okay. But if I'm being honest, I find personally find some aspects of the rigid woke culture rather painful. I can understand where it comes from. I grew up in a community which I and now which I see as highly bigoted. Feel most people are extremely unsafe for a great majority of the people I know and love now, and they believe very harmful things. But there are also people who are starting to question things. For starting to run away from more conservative ideology discussed by Trump and Trumpism. But maybe they don't fully understand words like abrosexuality or the underpinnings of critical race theory. What do we do? Do we push them away when they accidentally say something problematic? Or do we openly do we mock them openly online? Or do we put vulnerable and marginalized in the position of having to educate people over and over again? I don't think so. I think, in fact, folks like me are well-suited to address this stuff. I fully deconstructed it. I'm already living proof of that. I started deconstructing around 2013 and found comfort in my new church by 2016. I am secure in my faith. I am secure in what my political compass is, though I still refuse to join a specific political organization. Regardless, I am happy to tell you what I personally believe about almost any issue and remain firmly leftist. I am still learning. I am secure in my beliefs and my relationships. I'm not afraid to, of any challenges or arguments. Trust me, I've heard them all. Am I a good person to talk to deconstructing people then? My problem is I get so emotionally attached to the arguments, not just because I hate how bigoted and cruel people can be, even when they don't intend to be, but intent isn't the most important thing in arguments, but because I constantly feel like, hey, I used to believe that too, and hey, it's not true, and, about that, and I learned about it, hey, you should be able to get to the same place I am at, too. I can come off as mean in arguments, and sometimes when I hear people spew some dumb bullshit, ironically the same bullshit I used to believe myself, I am filled with rage. But I hope, but I, hope I have, in passing, helped people see different perspectives, even in my flawed way. If we are honest, though, changing people's mind is hard work and it's not easy. The majority of people on this planet maintain the religious and political beliefs that they are raised with. Beliefs often function as a cultural identity more than something to be critically dissected. Even I am still a Christian because I was raised a Christian. Sure, my Christianity is drastically different from the Christianity I was raised with, but if my parents had been atheists, would I still believe anything at all? Statistically, probably not. Here I am, though, a dirtbag and a leftist and a Christian. When I was in high school, new atheism was a large movement. Figures like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens said God was dead, and believe in him was totally illogical. Folks in various online communities gathered up arms and followed suit, mocking religious people online nonstop and mopping up about sky daddies and the like. These days, however, the new atheism movement is nearly a joke. Dawkins was even formally shunned by a prominent humanist organization for his belief set regarding trans people and Islamophobia. This isn't because people dislike atheism. There are more non-religious people than ever. People dislike this form of atheism. 
I would say the rise of non-religious has more to do with how terrible religious people and institutions are, and less to do with efforts of atheists mocking metaphysical concepts like belief in a higher power. After all, paganism and belief in astrology are more popular now than maybe they've ever been. Maybe methodology of the argument matters. There does need to be a space for deconstructing Christians who ask frank questions that might get them laughed out of established progressive circles. Maybe leftists believe that if liberals would only saw mocking beliefs and customs of these people in the first place, they might be more inclined to be on our side. I don't know about that, but I do think we got to start humanizing them regardless, hoping them deconstruct the wrong things evangelical culture taught them and step away gently if Ern is still in a reactionary place. Protecting ourselves is important, too. My heart breaks to hear my parents and extended relatives repeat blatant lies they've heard, internalized, and now believe. But I know it's because they desperately want to hold on to their cultural identity. Sadly, their preconceived beliefs about things such as race, sex, and gender are all tied into that. I hope if I can stay consistent in my humanizing them all, while balancing promoting justice and equality above her feelings and my own, and I can eventually reach them. And we're not even actively deconstructing. If people actually want to learn and help the world be a better place while actively listening to marginalized voices and not their own, that's even better. I'm going to try to hold the space for people who do want to learn uh, to help reach oppressed peoples, even if it's a little messy at first. So yeah, this was this is such an important article. Um, just a reminder, you know, that your next door neighbor, your next door Trumpist neighbor, not an enemy. They're a person just like you. They what they believe is because that's just what they are raised to believe. They probably have most conservatives, especially in like. Uh, here in the Midwest I know of, a lot of them have ne literally never met a leftist. Or if they have, you know, they're... Unfortunately, often stereotypes of leftism. Uh, you know, uh, Ben Shapiro-type strawman. Um, the thing is, we can't just write off these people. You have to be willing to engage with them in some kind of dialogue. You have to... Sure, you know, you absolutely point out what they get wrong, but shouldn't dehumanize them for, you know, thinking wrong, you know? One of the most discouraging things about the left, I have, uh, you know, being a former um, far-right right-winger, you know, um, someone who, you know, like, when I was on the right, you know, I was a Alex Jones listener, okay? Like, I took Alex Jones and Glenn Beck seriously, um, you know, I believed, uh, you know, uh, homosexuality and trans, uh, people were, um, subhuman people, were subhuman pieces of shit who deserved to be twisted off rooftops and be stoned. These were things that, that I was taught and therefore believed, and I even pushed. I even remember commenting in places such as the Daily Caller saying, you know, yeah, stone, stoned is gay people. It, this is the person I used to be, and I used to, uh, believe that, uh, Women were subhuman. I used to believe that um, women uh, deserved to have all their rights taken away from them. Um, you know, uh, these were things that I used to believe, in fact. Um, I was a, you know, a, a, you know the irredeemable 
conservative, you know, I was that person, you know, if I were to go online during that time, you know, I go on Twitter, you know, uh, most people would, you know, on the left, um, would say, consider me one of the irredeemables. I got out of that. I don't hold those views at all anymore. In fact, I uh, advocate for the exact opposite, you know. Um, and, and I'm going to be straight up honest in many ways, you know, what I'm doing here with this uh, podcast. Uh, but mostly like my blog, um, mostly my blog, but to, to also, you know, this podcast to an extent, you know, pretty much anything I do online, at least to an extent, is to kind of act as penance for who I once was. Very few people are irredeemable. Sure, there are absolutely probably some. I fully recognize that. But the problem is, you know, we, we, we call out the right pretty regularly for dehumanizing minorities and left. But unfortunately, I see it so often here on the left where we dehumanize uh, right-wing people. Don't get me wrong, they do some absolutely horrific things, and in many cases, and some of them absolutely are our enemy, who we need to give the middle finger to, and say, hey, we want nothing to do with you, get out of society, you're, you're too harmful, you know? Especially like the prop, but those are usually propagandists, you know? Uh, not your next door neighbor, you know? Or some random uh, uh, stop to steal Trumpist on Twitter. You know, our, our enemy is the ruling class uh, and the propagandist, not, 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 not your next door neighbor. And we just often forget all that. And it's pretty harmful to see. Um, but yeah, you know, um, but the thing, you know, but it, one of the things on the right was I gonna be honest. I think that there was more freedom of thought on the right than there is on the left. I know that too many on the left, especially those who may have been uh, raised in the left, you know, they never were a part of the right, you know, or maybe, you know, don't even have, you know, really never really interacted with um, conservatives, you know, in any meaningful way. If you have to see the right as a monolith, it's not true. Um... The right, like, I'm to be honest, I, like, I saw a lot more uh, allowed diversity of thought than I often do on the left. You know, when I joined the left, you know, one of the things I was excited for is because I, you know, I thought that, you know, maybe that it seemed like to me that, you know, when I was just starting to join the left is that, you know, it was a lot more open, you know, you could question more, you know, you, you were, you could be more free to question things, um, have more variance in thought, and it's been the exact opposite. In fact, I think uh, I feel that they allow more variance in thought and beliefs on the right than they do the left, which has been massively disappointing, kind of hard to deal with. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the left, they really don't allow places to question at all. Uh, I'm not saying the right does much either, but I, but I was able to question a hell lot more 
on the right than I was on the left, and I am on the left. Um, you know, and if you say anything wrong, well then, you called a bigot, and people want nothing to do with you. you, you there's no place on the left for you to fuck up or to question things. And it's dangerous. And we, we need to stop that. It's something that is harmful to everyone. And I feel like that the Dirtbag Christian put it pretty eloquently in our article. So, anyway, um, that's really everything I've got for today. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, and have a wonderful day. Peace.